Hey everyone, it's Jana. 2017 was a long, hard year for many of us caregivers, so I want to end the year on an up note. Today's episode is a rebroadcast from the archives with human energizer bunny Loretta Vini. Loretta approaches caregiving in a way that's creative, inspiring, and hopefully contagious. Since we first aired this episode, her memoir about caring for her mother, Doris, has been featured in a New York Times article, and Loretta and her mother have participated in an hour-long documentary about Alzheimer's disease for Nashville Public Television. We'll have links in the show notes to both the article and the documentary, so you can check those out. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and I wish you all the best for health and sanity in the new year. See you in 2018. Loretta Vini describes her journey with her mother through Alzheimer's disease as, quote, faithful, funny, heartbreaking, and hopeful. She chronicled that journey and the unbreakable bond with her mother, Doris, in a memoir titled Being My Mom's Mom. Loretta joins us today from my hometown of Washington, D.C., and I couldn't be happier to have her on the show. Author, trainer, and motivational speaker, Loretta Vini, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Oh, thank you. So you're a fifth-generation Washingtonian. Um, I am. Which is super cool. You don't, <laughs> you don't meet many of those. And from what I read, your mom raised you in D.C. all on her own on a government salary and trips to the Smithsonian were a staple. <laughs> Tell us more they, about your upbringing. They were. I was raised in my grandparents' home. I was born at home accidentally. And Wait, you were born was- in the home? I was, accidentally. Yeah, she had ind- She thought she had indigestion, and uh-huh. by the time she realized that wasn't what it was, I was out, so there you go. And <laughs> wow. um, I guess they were there just visiting, apparently. But So we ended up staying there, so it was my sister and I, and then, um, you know, my grandparents. So, you know, I think what was great about growing up in the house with your mom, but also with your grandparents, is that you got a lot of history from them and, you know, kind of was a built-in babysitter, too, yeah. which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was really neat. And my grandparents were very faithful people, very law-abiding, had a lot of values, and just taught us to work hard and do well in school. Just all of the things that, you know, all the family values that you want. Yeah. And it was interesting because my dad wasn't there. My grandfather did a lot of things that, you know, fathers did. You know, taught me how to ride a bike. You know, stuff That's like cool. that. Went to some Girl Scout stuff mm-hmm. with me. And, and we're talking you know, about like the that. 60s here? I was born in 1959. So, yeah. Nobody drove in, in our house. So we rode the bus everywhere. Mm-hmm. So there was some bus somewhere that went to Glen Echo Park. I don't know if you remember that. I do. And, you know, rode all the rides and fed me all the popcorn and cotton candy and all the stuff. They're probably not supposed to feed you. Uh-uh. So, yeah, it was really great doing that. And I think one of the things that has made this disease kind of so shocking for me is that I was around older people all my life. You know, sometimes after church uh, on the Sundays that we didn't go to the Smithsonian and other activities, we went to my great-grandmother's house, mm-hmm. and she lived by herself until she was 100, and she always knew us and, you know, had great conversation, and she always was baking things for us, and so I just thought people got older and, you know, did the best they could, and, you know, I didn't notice any of the senility, that's the term folks mm-hmm. used to use back right. then, of course, Right. so yeah, so... You know, one of the reasons for the book was because I was so shocked when my mom was diagnosed at age 77 because my grandmother was babysitting and still doing all kinds of stuff into her 80s and, you know, knew everybody and, you know, all of these kinds of things. So I was like, dementia, what is that? Let me get my little book out. So it was crazy. Uh So I was trying to do this (laughs) overnight research for this thing I had never heard of. And they were really, I mean, just really great health, you know, in our family. So... Yeah, you talked about that in one of your presentations regarding getting lulled lulled into not thinking about complacency. Yeah, complacency. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, but so it's been great that people have sort of heeded that advice. But nobody wants to have these conversations with you know where do you want to go, what do you want to do. Nobody wants to have those. Mm -hmm. But when you don't, what happens is the person is then sort of subjected, if you will, to whatever your choices are Yeah. when, you know, we don't really know if that's what they would want. So mm-hmm. rather than second guess yourself, 
you know, it's nice to have those conversations early on. And it probably was hard back in the day, but now you can get online and, and get a book about how to so have true. difficult conversations. So true. So true. <laughs> so, kind of no excuse not to do it now. Conversation started. It's so and true. <laughs> and your mom turned 88 in February. Um, she I saw, did. And I know that she was the first person in your family who was diagnosed right. with dementia. So take us through right. that diagnosis and sure. your reaction and hers. We started to notice just some little things. There's that chapter in the book that talked, you know, called, and it was the little things at first, and it really was. You know, she had these exercise classes that she loved, and the very first thing I noticed was that she missed her favorite one, and she, she, there was this one called Stretch and Flex, and she liked that one too. But Tai Chi was her all-time favorite, everything, oh, wow. and that was twice cool. a week. And she helped the guy, you know, especially if the guy wasn't going to be there, she could take the people, particularly the new people, through the exercises and everything. And so she just worshipped it. And I called one Tuesday or something. Um, I said, oh, you know, how was Tai Chi? And dead silence on the other end, like, oh, was that today? Oh. And she would never, ever have missed Tai Chi. If you called her in the morning and said, hey, you want to go to lunch? Oh, no, it's Tai Chi day. Mm-hmm. Like, what? Tai Chi's in the afternoon. We talk about breakfast or whatever. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> so she would never miss it. So I, and I remember telling my sister, hey, you know, Mom missed Tai Chi today. My sister said, what was she doing? I said, I have no idea. But we both thought it was odd. But mm-hmm. neither of us did anything or said anything. Hmm. And I, I don't even think I brought it up again. So little things like that started mm-hmm. to happen. And then I think the turning point was I got a call from the non-assisted living building where she lived. Mm-hmm. And they said that she had missed her rent payment, which she had never done. She had been there for probably seven years or so at that point and had never, ever, you know, been late. So I'm thinking, mm-hmm. what? And then she thought she, when I talked to her, oh, I thought I sent that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she didn't sound really worried at first, but then as the conversation went on, and she was looking in the, you know, in her checkbook, and no, she hadn't written it, and she wondered why and stuff. So, you know, a few of those happened. Uh-huh. So she had a neurologist anyway, because I think her general practitioner, which she never mentioned, I think her general practitioner had started to notice a couple of things, too. Or maybe she mentioned some things to him. And he says, well, you know, what have you um, looked over by the neurologist? Well, that person didn't do anything initially, just looked at her. Mm. Just basically kind of said she's getting old, whatever. And I was kind of... Did basically. you go with her to that one? Or did not she go on her own? Okay. Not, not initially. Okay. But when those things kept happening, I said, well, what is this neurologist guy saying? Oh, no, not too much. And he wanted to, you know, put her on something. And I said, oh, you know what, let me just go. Mm-hmm. So I started going to everything. That was the, that was probably the second place I had um, gone with her. So we went, and he was kind of surprised to see me. He was uh-huh. really <laughs> brusque guy, didn't like him at all. From I mean, the moment he walked into the, mm. you know, off the, just, instantly did not like him and he just seemed um just really short and he turns around like you know who are you kind of thing wow and you know i introduced myself and so we're sitting across from him and my mother looks really scared so i'm holding her hand because i'm not sure what she thought you know he was going to say and i guess what i had missed in the previous visit was i guess he had done a scan of some sort i never did get to the bottom of what he did Mm -hmm. and so i guess he had done some things and, you know, just asked the typical questions, the month and the season. Like and that she, mini mental she, test. She missed, she missed quite a few of those, I guess, and whatever his initial assessment was. Mm-hmm. So as we're sitting there, he just, you know, says, you know, well, you're in the beginning stages of dementia. Just like that. And she looks at me, you know, her head kind of snaps around. She says, oh, that's bad, isn't it? And, you know, I'm looking at him, and he's just matter-of-factly looking at the chart. He isn't really saying anything after he says it because she's asking questions, but she's asking the questions of me. Mm-hmm. So I say, well, you know, there's worse things. I want to see what else he has to say. And I told her, you know, we'd do it together because I was holding her hand, and I was kind of squeezing her hand. She really was scared. But mm-hmm. he just didn't seem compassionate or anything. He just sat there like, are y'all done? That's, that's oh, really wow. the look on his face. That's harsh. <laughs> and so then he says, well... We can put you on something, but just know it's not going to cure it. There's no cure, but you can take this stuff, and it'll (laughs) slow it down from progressing. And my Mm. mother says, I don't want to take anything. And she thought she was taking a lot of drugs. But the only thing that was wrong with her, she has a low thyroid. So for Mm -hmm. 20 years, she had been taking this, you know, thyroid medicine. That's it. So she says, oh, Mm -hmm. I'm already taking the medicine. I don't want to take anything else. And so he says, well, you have to. And I said, she doesn't have to take it if she doesn't want to. And he says, 
she does if you want her to remember you. <gasps> I wanted to say, dude, really? What? So that was the end of me and him. So she agreed to try it. So he gave us this little carry bag. Aerocept, like a you know, sampler. Mm-hmm. I've been down yeah. that road with my mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we took our little purse of drugs with us. And, you know, I read the whole thing, and she said she would try it. But I really wasn't going to make her do it, especially since he had already said, I mean, there's no cure, which, you know, you know. That was the first thing I learned. So she was just terrified the whole ride home. I mean, she wasn't crying, but you could just see she was so scared. And I think, you know, what you're doing at that point is you're just trying to imagine your future. And I think that was because she said, I wonder what she did say a couple of times. I wonder what's going to happen to me. I said, well, I don't know. I said, but I'll be right here, you know, with you every step of the way. It'd be me and you. And she said, okay. And she always, I was always been her sort of reassurance my mother had a lot of anxiety when I was growing up you know my dad was gone and mm-hmm. so she had a lot of fears and you know am I doing this right you know yeah. kind of stuff she, she, was she never was really yeah she was never really confident in a lot of stuff so uh-huh. and it's just you and um, your sister right mm-hmm. I was the youngest so I, I did call my sister I mean I went by myself you know I, I guess I took off because I was obviously still working I'm still working now so mm-hmm. but I did take off you know that day to go with her and you know all that kind of stuff so um and then I, of course I let my sister know and then we, we both started researching you know things and you know what to do and all this kind of stuff so you know our plan was to do whatever together with my mom, but we used to joke. My sister had no patience, and they had some <laughs> difficulty, you know, when we were growing up. My sister's mm-hmm. nine years older, okay. so that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And she and my mother butted his a lot when we were younger, mm-hmm. and that sort of carried on, at least early on, and you know, into her adulthood. So I think my sister's thing was, you know, I was always the favorite kind of thing, and I guess I was. Mm-hmm. So my sister used to always say, you're going to get mama when she gets older because, you know, you have to pay, which is true. My sister didn't have an ounce of patience, really. Uh-huh. So I knew that would not have gone well. And especially when you, it would be different maybe if it was cancer or something like that. But when you're talking about a disease where folks, you know, eventually don't know you and yeah. then they repeat everything and yeah. all these other kinds of little things that can get lost, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, I don't have the patience for that. So I, I think it depends on when, when kids are caregivers. I think it really does depend on what the situation is because everybody is not built to be a caregiver, that's for sure. Oh, for sure. And so, but pe- people think I was born to do it. So that was our in- intro to it. So I, we didn't ever go together to any, you know, Alzheimer's thing. But I, I know my mother and just her anxieties, I thought... Going yeah, where? I'm sorry, going to where? To Alzheimer's, a support you know, uh, symposiums oh, and okay. workshops and right, things right. where you learn not only how to, you know, care for the person, but a lot of people with the disease come too. And so okay. I was noticing mm-hmm. when I first started going to them, some people were coming as entire families, mm-hmm. siblings or mm-hmm. spouse and, and mm-hmm. the patient themselves. But I, I had never thought to do that, mostly because... I thought it would be more harm to her than good. Yeah, I think that was really so. perceptive, and uh, mm-hmm, you knew your mm-hmm. mom really well. Some well, people come. Well, if I come... could just uh, slow you down for a second. Um, sure. How did you react, besides being sort of angry with the neurologist? Mm-hmm. Did you have any sort of immediate reactions to the news? I was shocked. I mean, just shocked. Okay. The first thing I thought about was money, because my mother always talked about money. Yeah. Money in the sense that I start almost every presentation by saying, my greatest fear is that my mother's going to outlive her money. Yeah. My money. It's a huge concern. Because yeah. it's, it's huge. I mean, that probably was the second thing I thought. First, I was just shocked. Like, where did this come from? Because, right. you know, as I said, my great-grandmother, she lived to be 107. Mm-hmm. So when she was 106, she could still recognize everybody. She could still hold a conversation. She could still do all of these things. Wow. And then her body finally started to shut down. And my grandmother was the same. My grandmother only died in 98 because she got colon cancer. And they, she was so healthy. They said, well, you know, we can do surgery and this and that. She was like, oh, no, I'm ready to go. So she well, did nothing she and, died and at died. 107, I read. My, mm-hmm. Your great-grandmother, Lou My Ray. great-grandmother, yep. And then my grandmother died at 98 because she had colon wow. cancer. But they, they wow. wanted to treat her and all that. She was like, no, no, let's just move on. <laughs> and so my so at 77, I'm thinking to myself. Well, that hmm, is a shocker. You, I thought I had 30 years to go. So we not only had never had the conversation, I just thought, you know, you were still going to live there in your little non-assisted building. 
and I would come home, and I went to every activity they had. So all my plans were just around doing what we've always done. Right, and she was just so, in a regular scary. apartment, right? She was. Before yeah, that. and and they right. were very, uh, they they were very. Uh, quick to point out that it is a non-assisted living. So you were supposed to be able to do everything on your own. And I think one of the things that really caused some problems near the end, my mother was very popular. And so one of the things that happened earlier on before I had to move her was that when she started forgetting to go down to dinner, they started bringing dinner up to her, which they were not supposed to do. And Uh somebody was supposed to call me. How they took attendance, if you will, to make sure nobody was missing or anything. At the end of the line in the in the dining room, there was a person who would check everybody's name off the list. Mm-hmm. So if you were not going to be there for dinner, you were supposed to say, "Oh, I'm going out with my daughter tonight," and they would cross you off. Uh-huh. And if you know at the end of the dinner thing, you know your name wasn't crossed off and you hadn't been there, they go up to your apartment. Mm-hmm. So, so this was an indi- was this an independent living facility? Or- it was a retirement what? community. They called it. Okay, so but it wasn't but a residential no- apartment like. You or I would rent to live in if we no. were looking. No, okay. it was a it was a over sixty okay. Episcopal retirement community okay. thing. They had a ton of activities like I all the rest it. of these places. So okay. the first rule they broke was taking the food up to her. So instead of calling me to say, "Hey, your mother's not remembering how to you know come downstairs and stuff," it ended up being another resident who told me that my mom was having a lot of difficulty, like, finding her apartment and stuff. Yeah. And, and part of it was my fault, because I did notice once, only one time, we got in the line, well, we got off the elevator to go to dinner, and I could go to dinner with her as often as I wanted, and we got in the line, and the, the woman said, my mother ate chicken, I think, every day. Mm-hmm. So the woman says, Miss Woodward, do you want your, you know, normal chicken? And she looked behind her like she didn't know who Miss Woodward was. Oh, and I oh. said, that's you, you know, she's talking to you. And then the whole rest of the dinner, she seemed, you know, disoriented, like she didn't really know who she was, and I kept trying to make conversation and stuff. So that was kind of the beginning of the end, I had to move her shortly after that. But mm-hmm. then nobody ever told me that she walked out once, all dressed up, told the receptionist she was going to work, and everybody knew she didn't work. Nobody called me or anything. They called me for all kinds of art fairs and bake sale, but my mother walked out of the building, and nobody called me. That was in the group home? No, in the apartment. Mm -hmm. So that was scary. Yeah, because I know that you wrote about, you had a a recent scare. That was a couple weeks ago. Yeah, where your mom, tell us about that and your earthly angel who found her. (sighs) Yeah, so in the group home. Which you moved her to when? In 2009. Okay. So when she had that incident where she had walked outside at the apartment Mm -hmm. and then she started forgetting to go to dinner, I was going there to take, supplies. I was having groceries delivered, but I took some of her favorites there, you mm-hmm. know, two or three times a week. I worked right down the street from this apartment. That was one of the oh, beautiful that's things about it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I worked right, I mean, literally a block away. So I, I went there almost every day. So when I finally decided I had to move her, I paid this woman to stay with her, and then we went to look at all these group homes. So I picked Mamie's Loving Care, mm-hmm. and it is exactly that. They, they love her as much as I do. So there are three homes, mm-hmm. um, and then Prince George's County, Maryland, I guess the size and everything dictates how many people you can have. So I picked mm-hmm. one of the smallest ones because mm-hmm. my mother doesn't really like people. She's mm-hmm. very much different from me. So <laughs> my husband and I went to see this place, and it was almost identical to the floor plan in my house. My mother oh, really loved great. my house. So yeah. I'm like, this is cool. Perfect. So dining room area with a big window, and, and, and when we went, everybody was sitting around the table, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. And to me, it didn't matter that they were all saying the same thing, repeating the same thing. They just, it was just company, and yeah. they, they all sat yeah. there. Music was playing from the 1930s. My oh. husband said, this is so cool. It really was cool. The funniest thing that happened was I felt like, you know, I was giving my mother away, so I was so sad. And they had told me, mm-hmm. oh, you know, before I bought her there, before we had picked it, that when you bring her, they're going to ask that you pretty much leave right away. Yeah, and we have that, too. And help her put all her stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm like, what you mean, leave my mama with you? But anyway, so I go, and I'm <laughs> trying my best. So I'm going to leave her and everything. So all her clothes are there, and they want to put the clothes away so they know where the stuff is. Okay, because I was like, well, I can't help her get settled. They were like, no, okay. So... I'm getting ready to go, and she's having a good time already. So they're all sitting around this table, and <laughs> somebody had made some cookies, so they're having cookies. So I say to her, I'm leaving now. And, you know, she says, okay, bye. I'm like, wait a minute, don't I get a hug or something? So she says, um, I'm having a cookie right now. I'll hug you next time. We <laughs> laughed and laughed. Oh, yeah, I'll hug you now. I'm having a cookie right now. Like, oh, okay. So the cookie played into, into her next getting lost. 
32. So anyway, just, just a regular home. So what they have on the door, almost everybody there except for one person does have some form of dementia. So mm-hmm. there is the normal contact little alarm thing. So when you open the door, they hear a sound. Mm-hmm. And they used to just have like two locks, just a little regular thumbnail lock thing that you turn. Mm-hmm. And then they had another more heavy-duty lock right above that. So two locks. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess my mother eventually figured out how to do both of those. So uh, a few months ago, she did get out and, and just walk down the stairs and she didn't get far because they heard the door and everything. So then they added a lock that goes at the top of the door, which I can't even open. I'm 5'5", five five and mm-hmm. I have to stand on my tiptoes to kind of reach it. So basically what happened when she got lost was a doctor came to see one of the other patients. When the doctor came in, my mother was sitting on the couch where she always is. So, and this was more recently, right? This was this was the 28th of April. Okay, so this is really recent. Mm-hmm. So, doctor comes, and apparently her plan was she was going to run into the bedroom where her patient was, look at the patient really quickly, and then run back out to her car and get whatever she needed. That's the doctor. The okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So, but apparently when she comes in, she doesn't just not lock the very top lock back, which my mother can't do. She also didn't shut the door all the way. So the, the caregiver who was in the kitchen cooking dinner, it's like 3.30. Mm-hmm. They eat around 4, Five. 4.30. Oh, okay. So the caregiver's in the kitchen chopping up whatever. So my mother and one of the other residents who's in a wheelchair, and she is totally nonverbal. My mother does say quite a few words. Mm-hmm. So they're both in the living room, and the lady's chopping, and the doctor goes to the thing. So the door must be cracked because mm-hmm. um, the contacts aren't together. So I guess a couple minutes later, my mother gets up. She opens the door. And it doesn't do the little ding or whatever because mm-hmm. it's not closed all the way. So out she goes. So the doctor's back there doing whatever it is she's doing. And then 20, 30 minutes later, she comes out. My mother's not on the couch. So she sticks her head into the kitchen to say she's leaving. And she says to the caregiver, where's Miss Dars? Well, she's sitting right there on the couch. She's like, no, she isn't. And immediately she started to panic because she realizes, oh, wow, I didn't lock that door. Uh-huh. So instantly she grabs her keys. They saw everybody starts to run. The caregivers live in the basement mm-hmm. along with one gentleman. So they run down there. Of course, she's not there. So she's gone. They have no idea how long she's been gone. So the caregiver does not drive. So she goes on foot in one direction. The other lady goes in the other direction. And the, there's two caregivers. And then the doctor who left the door open apparently gets in her car. So they decide which way they're going to go. And then there's a gentleman who's young. He's kind of my age. I'm not sure why he's there. But (laughs) he just had his leg amputated about Mm. six, seven months ago. So they put him on the porch because if he called her, she would come. And she'll go to anybody. So he's sitting out there to to see if she comes back. So everybody has their cell phone. They're going to call each other if they spot her But at this point, the home is unattended by caregivers. Pretty much. Okay. Pretty much. But but, but, uh, the only person there... Besides my mother, at that time, was um, the lady that's in the wheelchair, uh-huh. and she's very uncommunicative. I mean, her, she, uh-huh. just, she ain't okay. going nowhere. And plus, by now, the, the guy in the wheelchair, who's, like I say, he's 59 or so, uh-huh. he's, yeah, he's sitting you know, by the door. So even if okay. there was somebody else, he, nobody was going anywhere. So everybody's gone. Nobody finds her. So they, I guess they come back at one point, and then they call the police. Because she went all the way. You know, they were trying to figure, well, even if she was gone 20 minutes, she can't have gotten so far. So the, the doctors think she drove about two miles down to the giant. But the, the Wait a minute, is, wait a minute. Your mom got into a car? The doctor, the doctor drove doctor. as far as she thought my mother could have walked oh, I see. in that okay. time period. Okay. And but I, she is drove this like about a, two miles. A town but she did, or a rural setting? Suburb. It is a Washington suburb. Right. If you've ever been to the National Harbor, it's a mile from there. Busy. busy roads and uh-huh. stuff. So, uh-huh. so yes, she did eventually get in the car. But basically what happened was she was walking down this very busy road called Fort Foot Road. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how she got it. One of them is a four-lane road that she absolutely had to cross. Not sure how she did that. But in any case, two women were standing outside in their yard looking at flowers or whatever they were doing. And they see my mother coming, and then they watch her go by. Their mother and daughter, one of them says to the other, I wonder why she's out here by herself. It was 90 degrees that day. So they're looking at her, and she has that look. I mean, it turns out they're caring for their mother and grandmother. Mm -hmm. So they're very aware of the signs. So a few doors from them is a middle school. Mm -hmm. So they say, well, maybe she's going to pick up a child 
great-grandchild mm-hmm. or somebody okay. at the middle school. So they watch her. When she continues past the school, they get in their car and follow her. So a few you know, yards away from her, they pull in front of her, get out. They introduce themselves. They ask her what her name was. She said, Doris. And so they said, hi, Doris. You know, good to meet you. Do you know where you live? And she said, no. And so they said, well, do you have somebody we can call for you? And she said, I don't think so. They said, do you have any kids? I don't think so. They said, well, I'll tell you what. It's really hot out here, so why don't you sit in our car? They had the air conditioner on. Why don't you sit in our car, and we'll figure out what to do. Okay. So she gets in the car. They gave her a bottle of water and, of course, a cookie. So, <laughs> so she's sitting in the back, and, you know, they said she had her head laying on the seat, and they said, well, you know, if you can think of any place, like where you live or, or somebody we can call. She said, okay, but she doesn't remember anything. Well, they say two or three minutes later, They're, you know, waiting and looking around to see if somebody else is coming looking. So a few minutes later, she says, which she has not said in three whole years, Loretta. And they said, oh, who's Loretta? And she said, I don't know. And so Les says, okay. So I guess she Googles Loretta. She says she Googled me. So Loretta in Maryland, whatever she Mm -hmm. Googled. And so up pops the Washington Post article that came out last year. And it has this huge picture of my mother. She said, oh, that's her, that's her, that's her. <laughs> right, so that's a really important point. The Washington Post point. article was... It was written about me and mom. Okay. On July 19th of 2016, okay. it was on the front of the health section in the okay. Post. Mm-hmm. And they had this huge picture of her above the fold. And so it was her whole face and shoulders. And you don't see me at all, but you see my hands on her shoulder. And it says something like becoming your mom's mom. It's a stunning picture. And so they say, oh, that's her, that's her, that's her. So they see her. So in the article, she learns my whole name, Loretta Woodward Beanie. So then she gets on Facebook and she types in Loretta Woodward Beanie. And up I pop. She gets on Messenger. She sends me a message. She says, hi. My name's Tiffany. I live in Fort Washington. I think I have your mama. What? And so, <laughs> but what was interesting, and this was such a weird day because a woman who was like my second mother had died. Mm-hmm. And I had gone a few weeks ago to, to South Carolina to say goodbye to her and everything. So I had left my phone on the kitchen table, which I never do. Mm-hmm. And I was getting ready to go camping and I just didn't want to be bothered with the phone. So I was putting all the stuff in my RV refrigerator, getting ready to go. So I'm doing all of this stuff. I come back in later, maybe 20, 25 minutes later, after I've packed all my stuff in there. And there's a message, you know, on my phone. So I see the little Facebook icon thing and it pops up. So I write back, you know, oh, my God, what happened? Cause they, but the, the group home had called, too, to say she was missing. Oh, they had. Okay. So mm-hmm. at that point, you mm-hmm. already knew she was missing. I when found out both things at the same time. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Okay. You must have gone into a yeah. panic. I did. I was hysterical. I called my daughter. I'm crying. I, you know, so, and I'm in my car, you know, going t- to the group home. Mm-hmm. So the police figured it out right away because the group home calls to say she's missing. And then this other woman. So the woman gives me, she says, please call me as soon as you can. This is so Tiffany when I don't now. call back okay. in half an hour, then the woman and her mother called the police. Oh, to I say see. They found somebody. Okay. So she walked almost a mile. Wow. Wow. And I came right back home because they said that the police were going to come to my house, not to the group home. They were Hmm. going to come to my house and talk to me about my mother. So I rushed back here. They they did come. And basically what they said was once a person sort of escapes from where they live and the police have to be called, they put you on a wanderer's list, which then meant that they would have to put a bracelet on her so that they can find her next time and, uh-huh. and whatnot. So they explained right. all that to me. Fine, okay, fine. So that, that was cool. But in the, I didn't know that's what they were going to say. So as soon as I got home from the group home, I ordered an ID blazer for her. Now, I had one. I ordered one right around 2010 mm-hmm. for her. She had been at the group home about a year, mm-hmm. but she had declined a little more where she could not repeat her address. We used to always practice our address like you do when you had a child. Right. 522, and then she would say, kiss Conco turn. And so we used to do it all the time at the car. Mm -hmm. But then when she stopped being able to do that, Mm -hmm. I bought this ID bracelet, but she was never a jewelry person. So she yeah, my mom like that. Yeah, she, my mom wouldn't wear one of those. So wait a minute, Loretta. Away. How did she get back to the group home? Who took her back? The, the police went to the place where they called to say they found uh, the person. Okay, 
they knew that the missing person, the found right. person, were probably the same person. So they, they went there first. Okay, and so the found they brought her thing. back to the group home, and then you met her Correct. over at the group home. So mm-hmm. I saw she was okay. We hugged. Mm-hmm. She's still eating another cookie. <laughs> and uh, she was so unfazed, you know, by the whole thing. And I was hysterical. The caregivers were hysterical. The care- one of the caregivers was crying. So it was all, you know, chaos. And she was just enjoying her cookie. Very oh oblivious goodness. to what the rest of us were doing. So I came right back home and I ordered this ID bracelet. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, it's called Road ID. And it says, it's who I am. You can get a big one that has four or five lines where you can write all kinds of stuff. What's it called? I just got the Road ID. Road ID. R-O-A-D. It was their own website. It is amazing. It says on the package, came in this thing with the bubble wrap. Mm-hmm. But instead of it just being plain bubble wrap, it says, brace yourself. Contents may induce heightened levels of euphoria accompanied by an, out, an awkward <laughs> bout of involuntary rump shaking. We stuffed a whole lot of peace of mind in here, my friend. Oh, that's Set so it free. Cute. Let the ripping commence. And then you open the thing, then you get online and you activate it, you know, like you activate your credit card kind of thing. Right. And then so what happens is if they find her, you know, wandering somewhere, my number's on there, her name, her full name is on there my cell phone number in parentheses it says kid then there's a number underneath that so you know if it was 90 degrees and you know she had passed out because the police were getting ready to do a silver alert which is mm-hmm. you know when the seniors missing mm-hmm. and they were going to do that because nobody was sure exactly what time she left and she had already been gone more than an hour so what would happen now that she has the road id they call this 800 number and all her information comes up and if she's fainted you know she's allergic to penicillin yada yada so you have that whole thing so it's really geared for police and first responders mm-hmm. and all that so the reason why it says um it's, it's who I am is because I think it was originally designed for joggers and whatnot. Oh, you know, you fall down, you right, hit your head on the right. sidewalk, and, or you fall off your bike. You can have as much information on there. Please call my wife, yada, yada. And then I think as a sort of afterthought, if you will, then it became popular, too, with dementia They found another market stuff. for it. Interesting. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the, it is really cool. And she is, they said she is required to wear that. So, yeah, it was just a blessing in disguise. I mean, this could have turned out so differently had it not been those two people. She was so lucky. But that tells us, she was, but that really does tell us how many people are now being so aware of this disease. Because when my book first came out, I went to all of the churches and everything to see Mm -hmm. if I could give a talk about Mm -hmm. talking to your family members about this. Where do you all want to be? You know, what are the resources out there for us? And then the church pastors would say, oh, no, we don't have Alzheimer's here. And you're looking at the what? whole front row. Nobody knows where they are. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, I'm looking at these women right here. They don't have a clue who they are, much less where they are. But okay, if that's how you feel about it. There was just still such a stigma in the black community, and that's just crazy. But anyway, that's, that's me. Yeah. So none of that took off. But now... Everybody has a support group. Everybody wants you to come speak to your things. I'm thrilled about that. So what lessons did you learn in caring for your mom? Probably the biggest thing is just working on your patients every day. It is the thing that people call me most about. And will you speak with the congregation about that? Because some people will just readily admit. I've had people follow me out of grocery stores to say, tell me how you do that. You, your mother repeats so many things. You don't say shut up. Or, well, mm-hmm. I'm so mean to my mother. So it is the number one question I get asked. And oh, how do you God, do that? So- how do you do that? And did you change from the beginning? I, I mean, no, that was I, one I, of my questions, too. How did I've you always change? been like this. I've always been like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how I deal with the repetition in particular is because that's what most people ask me about. You know, I just pretend like it's the first time she asked me. So, yes, does it drive me crazy when she says the same thing, you know, 20 <laughs> times? Yes. Uh-huh. But I've never yelled at that. So the lady was curious because she told me, I didn't know, she told me that my mother had asked the same question 30 times while they, we were in a grocery store line. Uh-huh. And she said, did you realize she asked you that 30 times? I said, no. The funniest thing that happened was she was asking about the date. I was letting her write a check. So she was asking me what the date was. Mm-hmm. So the people in the line got so frustrated and the line was so long that by the time we got up to where you lean on the counter and mm-hmm. actually write your check. Mm-hmm. So one more time she asked, what's today? And before I can answer, everybody else in the line yells out, it's the 17th. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> and my mother burst out laughing and she says, I guess I asked you that before, huh? And I mean, me and her, we were hugging and high-fiving and oh, cracking up laughing. So I'm sure the rest of the people were pissed off. But so we're all laughing. We get our bags. We go run out of the store and this woman's following us and she's crying. And she says, listen to me. 
I learned so much from you in that line, but you have to tell me how you do it. She said, I'm terrible to my mother. I always say, shut up, stop asking me that. And she said, your tone, you don't even raise your voice. But I just practice. I pretend like, you know, it's the first time she asked me. She's my mother. She asked me a question. I answer it. Now, in my head, do I say, oh, my God, please stop saying that? Yes. <laughs> right. and, I, and, I, and I tell people I'm not saying I'm per. I mean, at one point I might say it, but as of this point I have not. I also... There's a thing in the book where I talk about knowing your triggers because a lot of people lose their patience quickly when their loved one pushes their button, whatever that button is. Yeah. And I say one of the things I do right when I get to my mom's group home, I sit in the car, I'm talking to myself. I'm like, now last week, this is what she did. It got on my nerves. Now this week, I'm not going to let that, you know what I mean? So <laughs> I do the whole lot of self-talk. Then I get out and I go on in and deal with it. And I also, you know, so you just give yourself a little, a little, you give yourself a little pep talk before you go in. I do. Okay. I do. And then I also visualize, especially if I know it's going to be something challenging. You know, you got to go to the doctor and I'm looking at my bag and making sure I have everything. I also visualize completing this challenge or difficult thing, whatever it is. And I, I'm good at the visualization. So I was like, okay, it's not going to be bad. The day will be over for you. know. And so that's how I deal with it. But one of the things I think that goes along for me with the patience is also preparation. And that's why the book was so important. I wrote the book because I felt so unprepared, and I didn't want other people to feel that way. Mm-hmm. But I can be calm with her and feel like we can do anything and conquer anything because I'm prepared. So I have this big bag, just like, you know, when you had kids, you know, you had this big diaper bag. So Mm -hmm. that's what I have. So I have extra diapers. I have change of clothes. And then I have all these toys. Fidget toys are quite the rage right now. And I made fidget toys out of Lego bricks. Lego bricks are my only connection to my mother. I guess she remembers the 9 million hours we spent playing with Legos when I was a kid. We would build anything, and my mother would always say, you could be anything. And so we would build it, whatever it was. And so I made these toys out of the Legos, glued them together, and I have about 12 in my car. And they all spin or twist. Wow, that is so creative. So I have all those in the bag, and I just started selling them on Etsy. And and, and it's funny because, you know, things change. So I tell people the reason why I carry so much stuff is because what works today is, might not work tomorrow. <laughs> and so for, for 14 months, we couldn't do her favorite hobby, which was reading. We, you know, we used to always have Reader's Digest, and she loved those word search puzzles, and yeah. it kept her very calm. And everything. Then for about 14 months, she read every single thing out loud, everything. Oh and I asked the neurologist about it, the one we liked, and uh-huh. <laughs> she said, don't worry, she will stop at some point just as she started. And she did, but I mean, it was very disconcerting to yeah. people because, yeah. you know, we'd be in the CVS and, you know, because she's so healthy, I would have her help me shop for the other people in the group home. So uh-huh. the caregiver gives me a list and I try to at least help them out with that since they don't drive. So we're in the line getting stuff off the shelf and my mother picks it up and then she'll say, K.O. Pecte for diarrhea. Really loud. People run out the aisle like, holy, holy shit, what was that? So, and I mean, people are like, why? And so that was hysterical, just like you're laughing. And so, but, I mean, it's very annoying to other people. Yeah. So, and you couldn't read in the doctor's office. So that's how the toys came about. Interesting. And then about, distracting. So that whole time, I never took her to church because mm, we're Episcopalian. So you, you get yeah. a bulletin and you read a part and then right. the priest went apart. So right. I thought she would be reading the wrong part. So they were like, oh, she, you know, I said, I'm scared she's going to talk to you. They were like, oh, you can bring her. So when she stopped, Mm-mm. I started taking Mm-mm. her back. Wow, that's, that's really amazing. So I became aware of your personal story from a piece in the Atlanta Daily World called The Black Caregiver Crisis. And yes. it's all about America's paid caregiving workforce, which is predominantly made up of women of color. And in my own culture, my culture is Greek. You know, the idea of putting... My mom into a care facility was really not familiar to us. If everybody right. you know, in our culture, correct. we take care. So every That's culture correct. has every correct. culture has practices, and I w- right. wonder what your view is how of how African Americans approach caregiving. Yeah, I, you know, it's not that you speak for the whole community, but you know, no, I don't. But I, under, I, I clearly understand the question. And I have to say it varies, and I'll give you an right. example. That's not that because I, you're right. You told me about the Greek now next door. My neighbors are Puerto Rican. They have a disabled child, but she also had her mother with Alzheimer's for years. Mm-hmm. And they just know that that's what you do. She had three boys and a girl, mm-hmm. and they ended up giving the, you know, the older woman to the, the daughter. But in my case, and other African Americans I know, you don't say, well, I'm not going to take care of my, my mother. It's kind of a given. Right. But in my case, I promised my mother I would not make her live with us. My husband was dying for uh-huh. her 
to come here, but she didn't want to do that, and so I was kind of stuck. Wow. She didn't want to move in with you. Right, okay. because she believed that it would ruin the marriage kind uh-huh. of thing. Uh-huh. That was her thing. That's interesting. So you mentioned earlier your other mom, Geneva, who died right. recently. And you right. touched in one of your blogs on how she helped you grieve for your lost mother, which was so touching to read. What did she teach you? She taught me that, you know, you have a mom and then they're still alive, but you want to do all the same things with them. You always did. So her thing was just enjoy the physical presence mm-hmm. with her. Mm-hmm. And then the wisdom and all the things that I miss about her, I can get from other people. And she volunteered to be kind of like that primary person. That's That's what happened. Yeah. And so, and before her, it was my Aunt Franny, who I would run everything by. Mm -hmm. You know, she was just the best thing ever. You know, I shared everything about my mom, you know, with her. Now I feel like I'm all by myself. And I think a lot of African-Americans feel this way. Like, you don't rely on the community to help you do stuff. You just do it. Well, but, you know, a lot of my African-American friends, they have a lot of siblings mm-hmm. and they share, you know, caregiving responsibilities. Like my stepdaughter's family, they would sort of shuttle the mother around and then she would end up in D.C. when the woman that lives here, who was a principal, she had the whole summer off. So uh-huh. the rest of the siblings, they would do nine months knowing that she'd be every summer with this one. So there's a lot of coordination. Well, you know, I didn't have that because I only had the one sister. And then when she died, it's just me. Oh, I didn't know that your sister died. I'm so sorry to hear that. My sister and my husband died on the same day, five years apart. Oh, my goodness. I don't know who in the hell thought that was a good idea. Oh, I'm Um, so sorry to hear that. And, you know, when they told me that he was not going to survive, and I I knew exactly what the date was, and I was like, please don't die tomorrow. And he did. Oh. And I think, you know, really, I think one of the things I have learned from my husband is that he did everything for Mm. my mother. Mm. Everything. Mm Mm-hmm. So now I'm not only without my husband, who was like my best friend ever, but I'm realizing exactly how much he did for my mother. Mm-hmm. That I don't know if I'd say I took it for granted. I never took anything he did for granted, but it really comes into play. Now, thank God she's healthy because he would pick her up at the group home, drive her to the doctor. I would leave work, meet them at the doctor's office. He would wait until the appointment was over drive her back to the group home, and I'd go back to work. So I was only gone an hour and a half, two hours, whereas I'd be gone four or five hours if I had to do all that. It's and when amazing. did he die? He died July 17th of uh, 2016. Of 2016. So it's been, That's it'll very... be 10 months next month. Yeah, it's not even a year. And, and, and how no. did he die, if I may ask? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We were trying out our retirement plan in New York. I was um, a Lego instructor, so we were doing some camping in our RV and that's what we were going to do around the country, go to different national parks with our grandchild and live our retirement that way. And we were trying it out. I worked for Homeland Security. I asked them, could I go for a month to try mm-hmm. it out? They said, sure. Mm-hmm. I did. And he died on day 12 that we were in upstate New York. He had a stroke right in front of me. So I got him to the hospital and everything. And he had a few more strokes that week. And he lived six days. On the fourth day, they told us they thought the strokes were caused by cancer. So they started looking for where they thought the cancer was, but he had a massive stroke before that, and he died, which they told me could happen all along. But my daughter did get there in time to see them. You know, they were coming anyway to spend the week with us. We were going to Niagara Falls, but they got there in time to see him and talk to him and all that. And so when he died, actually, it was amazing. We were still at our campground. He had this huge window with all these mountains in the background. He said, oh, I just love our campsite. I said, yeah, me too, and he went to sleep. That was the end of that. But when he died, we did go to Niagara Falls. We did go because we had paid for everything. And plus, it took them six or so days to finish with his body or whatever. And I wasn't coming back to D.C. without him. Mm-hmm. So the police department sent people up to drive our RV back. And I came back with my daughter. And we came back with him. Mm-hmm. And when they got the autopsy report, they said he had stage four pancreatic cancer. And he wouldn't have lived another month or so. So oh. I'm so relieved a he died not knowing that yeah and b he was not in any pain whatsoever and he died thinking we were at the campsite good for him as devastated as i am Mm -hmm. i am i'm thrilled is a good word that he just went i mean he just went right to sleep we were laughing and then you know all of a sudden he got kind of got choked and you were in the mountains yes we were in cooperstown new york where the baseball hall of fame is Oh. That's not where we were camping, but the ambulance drove an hour to get him to that hospital because it was mm-hmm. a stroke facility. Uh-huh. 
so yeah, so I had to come home, put my life together. And I mean, just wow. when I say he did so much for my mom, I had to buy a car 10 days after he died because I had this little fancy Cadillac, which my mother could not get in. He had a big Ford Expedition. And so he well, taught my lot, mother to reach up. That's high for her up. to climb up to. No, but he no. taught her how to, when he opened the door, uh-huh. and she would grab the hook inside, and the running board comes down, right. and oh, she would okay. step on that running board. Great. It was amazing. That's well, a big, car, big thing, getting an older person in a car. Yes. I know. I had this little Cadillac, and it was low to the ground, uh-huh. and she forgot how to sit. So I'm trying to explain. You turn and sit. It was crazy. And she started to cry. So I, I sold the cars he had, and then... You know, I end up getting, you know, a little SUV, but she can get in it and get out. And so, you wow. know, my whole life has changed. And who knew that my mother would outlive my husband? How old was he? 66 at the time. Okay. And a really young 66 because, you know, we went to Utah last year and hiking and all that with our you mm. know, granddaughter. And, you know, we were supposed to do Disney World, which we're doing tomorrow. And so okay. and we're going to do all these things, you know, without him. I promised him I would take her to all the national parks. So I'm still going to do it. Loretta, if you had to give people one lesson for caring for someone who has dementia, what would it be? It would be us learning how to live in their world as opposed to, you know, us making them live in ours. So we come up with new traditions and, and new things that don't scare them to death or, you know, raise their anxiety because, you know, this is all new for them, too. And they're, yeah. you know, they're afraid, especially if they have sundowners, challenges and things like that. So we have to, you know, create new stuff mm-hmm. for them what that makes been, them comfortable. What has been the most gratifying thing for you with the book? I think, uh, and my daughter kind of said it best. My daughter just saw me do a presentation about a couple months ago, and she had never seen me do it. And she says, wow, it was amazing watching all those people write down every word you said. And that's really <laughs> How old is she? She's 45. Okay. And she's 10. Yeah, she's Tim's. So I, but I've okay. had her since she was 8. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's, she's, and I'm all she's got left. Everybody else is gone. Mm-hmm. So um, this mm-hmm. is me and her mm-hmm. and my granddaughter. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, but that, that was an interesting comment. I think that all the time. I mean, I spoke to 600 people in um, Cincinnati at this huge caregiver symposium. And I didn't realize it was going to be as big as it was. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm up on this podiums and I'm watching these people, you know, writing and laughing and, you know, because I mean, I, I try to make them fun, even though this is a tough subject. So, yeah, it's it's very humbling watching people hang on your every word. So, yes, mm-hmm. it, that part's been amazing. So tell us more about your presentations and what's next for you. Sure. Um, so I just did Sibley Hospital, which is a big hospital. Sibley in the the center of D.C., so there's a couple hundred people this past weekend, and I'll be doing uh, University of Wisconsin coming up on June 2nd. These are like large conferences for, you know, the whole family. I do a couple of different presentations. The first one is really just about the book, and I talk about six things in the book, forgiveness, heartbreak, patience, humor, preparation, and hope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I share our story from that standpoint and all the lessons I've learned in each of them. And so that is primarily about the book. But last year, I've just started to do, for the first time in the Virgin Islands in St. Croix, like four weeks after my husband died, I was the keynote speaker. It wasn't like I could call and say, I can't come. But they did ask me. They were were very nice about it. They asked me if I still wanted to come. And I said, I would. And it was it was life changing for me. And I had written this thing called Lifting the Spirit of the Caregiver. Mm -hmm. And in it, I talk about grieving, much like what I had discussed with Geneva. Mm -hmm. So it was about grieving the person, the loss of this relationship. You thought you were going to have this long retirement with your loved one. Now he has Alzheimer's and you can't go anywhere. And so people feel hateful and resentful and all these things when that disease appears. So in that presentation, I talk about just, you know, appreciating the physical time and presence. I'm Mm -hmm. so happy now that I had that six days with my husband. And Mm -hmm. I think he thought he was dying. I don't, I guess I didn't really understand that that was the case. I thought, sure, we were going to walk out of there. But we said everything, but we held hands, we did all kinds of stuff. And and so, you know, I think when, when Alzheimer's comes around, people stop coming because they don't know what to say. Even, even the children sometimes, well, I don't mm-hmm. know what to talk about. I have learned that I don't have to do an activity with my mom. I just have to physically be there. That's so such practice, a great point. That's a really great point. sitting there doing that. So I, mm-hmm. I do that and finding joy in the small things. And so like at McDonald's, I had a couple pictures up of in this presentation of, you know, lifting the spirit. And I said, you know, I'd do anything for this smile. And it's my mom eating the ice cream sundae at McDonald's.
was just her favorite place to go. You know, in the old days, you know, we think we had to spend all this money on our parents to make them happy. And, you know, I, I don't think I see that look outside of this 99 cent ice cream cone. <laughs> and so it, it's, it's amazing. And I asked them to give small examples of where they find joy and we yeah. do this whole exercise and, and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. then, um, you know, we do coloring, we do a lot of different things about joy. And I play that old cool in the gang song mm-hmm. celebrate mm-hmm. and everybody stands up and we dance around because I, I say one of the ways to find joy is that you have to find joy and just in the smallest thing. Hey, I got mine to the bathroom in time when I had to change her. You know, <laughs> yeah. you should cheer that. And people are like, yeah, and everybody stands up and they singing and dancing around. And, you know, we don't do that enough. Our day is so filled and we don't find time oh, I, I to agree. have that joy. I mean, I, I just wrote a, another book that will be out in probably two weeks. And oh, it's great. called Refreshment for the Caregiver Spirit. And it wasn't a lot of writing. It really is a um, photo book of our favorite pictures that my husband and I took. Mm-hmm. And then I just put some motivational sayings on them. Mm-hmm. You know, what's it to called? To kind of build up the Refreshment for the Caregiver's Spirit. That's and that's coming out in a couple of weeks. Probably a couple of weeks. Okay, great. Well, listen, I want to ask if you have any last thoughts. Really just to not give up. This is a hideous disease. But if I could say anything to the folks out there, it would be, you are not alone. You know, find a friend, get a support group, somebody next to your next door neighbor to give you a hug. Because there are ways to cope with this without thinking that it's the end of the world. So that's what I would say. Author, trainer, and motivational speaker, Loretta Vaney. We're going to have a link on the HWISE website to Loretta's website and her book, Being My Mom's Mom. Loretta, thank you so much for being on the show and for all you do to support caregivers. And bless your heart for being such a great caregiver for your mom. She's one lucky lady. Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. And we'd love to know what you want to hear more of. You can email me at Jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z as my Canadian mother says. The AgeWise podcast is distributed nationally on the Speak Up Talk radio network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.